as a kid, one of the first songs I learned to play on the violin was Handel's Hallelujah Chorus from the Messiah. And even though this is a song specific to Easter, it seemed to always be requested around Christmas. And I liked playing it. But I never fully appreciated Handel's Messiah until we moved to Lindsberg. One of the things that makes Lindsberg unique is that they have the annual Messiah Festival. It is the longest continuous performance in the nation. They perform Handel's Messiah every year, and they've done it every year since 1882. And... I think one of the problems with very familiar songs is that we often gloss over the words. It becomes rote. The tune is so familiar that we're not concentrating on the message. And this had become the case with the Messiah Festival Choir. So about five years ago, the director decided you could not perform until you had completed a Bible study on the resurrection and a contemplative study on the lyrics of the songs. And I got to sit with several people from the choir as they studied the words and studied these words from the Hallelujah Chorus. Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. The chorus is a great exaltation of God's kingship. And what the choir members decided is that it is primarily joy-filled. And this shocked some people because we learned a little background about the chorus. When Handel wrote Hallelujah Chorus, his health and his fortunes had reached the lowest possible ebb. His right side had become paralyzed and all of his money was gone. His debtors had him on the brink of imprisonment, and he was contemplating giving up music entirely. And it was on his darkest day that he wrote his greatest work. This morning we are talking about joy, and the situation behind Handel's Messiah to me exudes joy. You see, joy is birthed in God and strengthened in adversity. Here was Handel, at the lowest point of his life, broke and broken, body failing and career ending, and he is shouting, God is God, hallelujah. The kingdom of earth is becoming like the kingdom of Christ, hallelujah. The Christian has joy. Joy. What is it? It's not happiness, that's for sure. We treat them like synonyms, but they're significantly different in their origins and meanings. You see, the root word for happiness, hap, is an old Norse word for good luck, good fortune, success, prosperity, or favorable conditions. It has at its very central understanding the concept that our emotional state, demeanor, and attitude is dependent on our circumstance. Happiness comes with success, good luck, and fortune. The Greek word for joy, on the other hand, is kara, from which we get words like character and charisma, and it means that which is already inside. And it came to mean joy, delight, or happiness, or whatever word you want to use to denote a good feeling, 
But the understanding of the ancient Jews, and especially in the New Testament, is that joy is already present inside. It is inherently a part of you. More specifically, it comes from what God puts inside of you. And it's not dependent on circumstance, but only on the inner spiritual reality that we know God personally and draw strength and contentment from that. You look at Handel, or many Christians at the stake who sang their way into eternity, and you know it is true when they say happiness is untested delight, but joy is delight tested. I want to share with you this morning the story of Perpetua. Perpetua was a Christian noblewoman who at the end of the second century lived in Carthage. And in AD 202, the Roman emperor Septimus Severus decided to eradicate the vibrant Christian community in North Africa. Perpetua was a 22-year-old first-time mother with an infant. And she was one of the first people rounded up and arrested. And even though there were many, many, many people who were snatched up in the waves of arrests in North Africa, we will call this the story of Perpetua because, wonderfully, her diary has survived, offering insights into what happened to her over 1,800 years ago and how she endured. I want to share some parts. She tells us that she was in prison, and her pagan father would visit her often and plead with her to deny that she was a Christian. Perpetua would respond, It is impossible that I be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. One afternoon, she records that she was nursing her young son, and the father showed up again and pleaded with her, Have pity on my gray beard, have pity on me, your father. Do not abandon me to the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother and your aunt. Think of your child who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. She responded, It will all happen in the prisoner's dock as God wills, for you know that we are not left to ourselves, but we are all in his power. On the day of her trial, Perpetua and her friend Felicitas were marched before the governor. The friends of Perpetua were each questioned, and each one of them readily admitted, I am a Christian. I refuse to worship the emperor. As the governor turned to question Perpetua, her father, carrying her infant son in his arms, dramatically rushed out, and grabbing hold of Perpetua's arm, pleaded, Perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby. And the chorus of voices from family and friends in the crowd, the military, and even the governor himself joined in the chorus, have pity on your father and on your infant son. Offer up your sacrifices for the welfare and well-being of the emperor. The response was very simple, I will not. The Roman emperor condemned Perpetua Felicitas and her friends to die to be thrown to wild beasts in the arena. And that's when the journal ends. However, we know what happens in the arena from several accounts. Perpetua and her friends enter the stadium, 
dressed in belted tunics and singing psalms. The amphitheater was filled with nobles, ladies, senators, and ambassadors, many of them her former friends. And on top of that, tens of thousands from the city who shouted their insults and derisions as the Christians were led to their death. There were many to be executed that day, not just the group of Christians, but the joyful demeanor of Perpetua Felicitas and the friends were so insulting that the crowd began to riot in madness and demanded it. They be killed first. The Romans loosed a bull first. It hit Perpetua and flung her in the air. But she stood up and helped her friends stand too, yelling out to the other Christians, You must all stand in the faith and not be weakened by what you have gone through. Animal after animal came, and yet they were not dying. The impatient crowd began to scream for the death of the Christians. So the authorities lined them up, and each one slain by a gladiator. Perpetua was only 22 years old when she died in an arena in Carthage. The crowd says her last words were spoken boldly, and they echoed like magic through the amphitheater. I am a Christian, and I cannot deny Christ. Those words became a rallying cry across the ancient emperor, it's actually recorded in diaries and on the lips of martyrs and in the papers of the persecuted church from Rome to the Middle East. And it's written by some of her former friends who were in the amphitheater that day. This is what it says. Perpetua and Felicitas came into the arena joyfully, as though they were on their way to heaven. They looked young, beautiful, pure and modest as any lady with a shining countenance and calm step, as if they were truly the beloved of God, even as the Christians say, a bride of Christ, putting down the stairs of the crowd with her own, a gaze most intense. These two young women, their steadfastness, even joy, in the face of troubles, have encouraged Christians ever since. Her journal has encouraged Christians ever since. And I think it's fitting that their names have been put together throughout history, remembered and translated together in numerous languages. The Roman Christians called them by their Roman names, Semper Fidelis, which you might know as the motto of our very own Marines, Always Faithful. The unbelievers in the amphitheater that day said they looked joyful, as if they were on their way to heaven. The question this morning is, do I, do you, have that kind of visible joy? Do we have the kind of spectacular joy to sing psalms in the face of bulls and leopards, the sword and jeers? Do we have the enduring joy to face the beating days and the lonely nights, the endless chores, the struggling minds, the shattered expectations, the broken hearts of life. Joy is not happiness. Joy only exists where there has been suffering. Joy only exists when your delight has been tested and you've endured in the power of the Spirit. Joy is a hallmark 
of Christianity. It is necessary to our identity. It is the second fruit of the Spirit. I think Billy Sunday said it best. If there is no joy, there is a leak in your Christianity somewhere. And as I was thinking of this metaphor that the Scripture presents, the idea that God grows inside of us something beautiful and useful, fruit, I think it was fortuitous because I heard someone use the phrase sour grapes. And last week I said these fruits grow together. They are one but nine. They grow like a bunch of grapes. And I think this fruit metaphor fits well. Because, man, there are definitely some sour grape Christians out there. And here's what I think about first when I hear that phrase. Sour great Christians worry about the messes in the church rather than the joy that could be found in realizing that the building has fulfilled a need to love and laugh. A sour great Christian has forgotten about the forgiveness and grace they have received from Christ, so there is no joy, there is only judgment in them. A sour great Christian worries about starting on time and schedules rather than people and relationships. A sour grape Christian complains about children being loud and spilt coffee and underdressed members rather than the joy that people have come together just to be together once a week. A sour grape Christian focuses on themselves. What did I get out of worship? What did I like about the sermon? Did someone say hi to me at church? Spirit joy finds pleasure in the fact that people come together and the words of the hymns are sung to God and scripture is preached and people have shown love. A sour grape focuses on the past rather than the future, on what what went wrong rather than what went right, the worries rather than the promises of God, the unanswered prayers rather than the blessings. And a sour grape can ruin a good bunch. I want to have a joy-filled church where the Spirit is moving, where there is laughing children and smiling faces and people who sit on back porches together and get coffee together during the week, who share meals and stand shoulder to shoulder together in ministry. If we lose the enduring delight of being in relationship with God and the joy of being with each other, we will move into a dangerous and miserable death as a church. And I want this place to be filled with joy when the pews are empty and the coffers are bare and the people in the community are sliding us and the grumbling starts. I want this place to shine in joy when the world is not sunshine and rainbows because our contentment does not come from good times. It does not come from the esteem of others. It does not come from what we own or what we have. It comes from the Spirit. It comes from Jesus Christ. I was reading about the writings of a pastor in Tulsa, Jim Johnston, who was talking about how you know when your Christian faith is beginning to struggle. Because sometimes it's really difficult to know when you are slipping spiritually. And he emphatically stated, one of the clearest signs that you are slipping in your relationship with God is that you no longer have joy. 
Joy is so essential to Christianity, if you're not exhibiting it anymore, you have to take a hard look at yourself. He said it's like the coal miners of old with their canaries. You know the story. Coal miners knew that there was dangerous gases that could gather silently and secretly in the tunnels. Carbon monoxide. Methane. Mining is a dangerous business. But in the early days of mining, they found an effective low-tech solution. They brought canaries into the mines. A canary's metabolism is very sensitive to air quality. As long as the bright yellow bird chirps and sings, the miners know the air is safe. If gas levels rise, the canaries stop singing, wobbling on their perch, and eventually falling to the floor of the cage. Christian joy is like the singing yellow bird. One of the first effects of sin, sourness, stumbling or slowing, in our walk is the death of our joy. When your heart stops singing, when that little yellow bird begins to wobble, when the joy is gone, this is a warning to watch your life and doctrine closely. How do we get joy at this level as a church, as, a, as an individual? We already said that it comes from within. It is a foundational characteristic of God that will be present where the Spirit is present. But I also see many people who I believe have the Spirit that do not exhibit joy. Christian joy, like any of the fruit of the Spirit, relies on and is fed by God. You have to be making sure you're connected to the life-giving vine. The joy is planted and grown by God, and joy is a natural byproduct of our relationship with God. And it grows most surely during times of sorrow, misery, pain, suffering, illness, loss, misfortune, despair, grief, trouble, affliction, trial, and tribulation. The Christian who is led by the Spirit will press into God more closely during the hard times. We will learn more of God's love and care more in those tough moments. We know more of what it is to be content, to find rest, to find delight in that which is not circumstance-based. The most joyful people are those who have suffered the greatest. You always have the choice to become better or bitter. Joy is taking the junk of life and relying so closely on God during those moments that you come out more full of His Spirit and more content in His grace. Joy is what sustained Jesus. If it can sustain Jesus, it can sustain you as well. We stand as Christians on the promise of Hebrews 12, 2-3. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Did you catch that? Jesus endured the cross, its scorn and shame. He endured great opposition from sinners, because He knew the joy beyond the cross. And Jesus did not grow weary. He did not lose heart. He looked beyond the cross to the resurrection, the ascension, and sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
In times of trial and tribulation, the Holy Spirit empowers us to be like Jesus. He reminds us of the joy set before us. That joy is rooted in our assurance that Jesus is returning to reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords forever and ever. The joy that is set before us keeps us from growing weary and losing heart. Joy grows in the practice when we keep our eyes on what comes after the suffering. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 6-9 about where some of our rejoicing should come from. This is what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Because of his great mercy, he has granted us a new birth, resulting in an immortal hope through the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah, from the dead, and to an inheritance kept in heaven for you that cannot be destroyed, corrupted, or changed. Through faith, you are being protected by God's power for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the end of this era. You greatly rejoice in this, even though you have to suffer various kinds of trials for a little while, so that your genuine faith, which is more valuable than gold, that perishes when tested by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus the Messiah is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let me highlight that passage again, the reasons for our joy. Even if your life is not conducive to it, Peter says, Rejoice, for you have a new birth. Rejoice, because you have seen mercy. Rejoice, because God is not dead. Rejoice, because you have an immortal hope and an inheritance. Rejoice, for you have a place in heaven that cannot be destroyed, corrupted, or changed. Rejoice, because your faith is growing. Rejoice, for God is always God, and He is always present. All these hurt, and trials are not nothing. The world and its anger and its grief are, are not nothing. But the Christian knows they are a brief shadow when you are rooted in eternity. Rejoice. Sometimes you may not feel like rejoicing. The darkness of the world and your pain might want to cloud it out. But that's when we find the Holy Spirit and we press in deeper to God. We choose to relish in joy because we know the Messiah personally and we trust him. Being glad is a decision of the will, not a reaction of your emotions. I don't envy those who have never known pain, physical, spiritual, or emotional. Because I believe the capacity for pain and the capacity for joy are equal. And those who have suffered great no great joy. Too many Christians today are joyless. One writer declared, the glum, sour faces of many Christians, they give the impression that they are coming from the, the house of the sheriff who've just auctioned off their sins and they're sorry they can't get them back again. 
rather than they are coming from the Father's joyful banquet. We have much to be joyful about, so let's show it. We're supposed to be people of joy. Let's show it. The world is starving for fruit. They need to see the Christian's joy, so let's show it. The church needs to hear your joy and testimony. Joy is infectious. It is powerful. If our family, friends, and neighbors see that we are full of joy in the Lord, they will stampede to follow our Jesus. Because people want that kind of joy. They hunger for that kind of fruit. Joy is an essential character quality for Christians. It is part of our growth. It's part of our walking with God. For those who don't have it, or for those who don't show it, we really need to be looking inside ourselves. The fruit of the Spirit is the visible elements of God's character in us and in the world. It is what we show to prove ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ. It is our testimony to the world. It must be evident in who we are and how we act. So that's the challenge this week. Joy is fruit. It blossoms so that all can see. Look inside yourself and question yourself. Does the world see you as joyful? Or do they see you as a sour grape?